0: Andy McNamara, the Director of Fine Wine for Premier Beverage in Florida, and also the Chairman of the Board of the Court of Master Sommiers Americas on the show today. Hello, sir. How are you? Wonderful. Thank you so much for having me, Levy. Nice to have you here. So your dad used to collect wine back when you were a kid. That he did. It was uh,
1: a really fun time for me. It was a way that it really got me introduced to not just the 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 love of wine, but the love of wine around relationships and family and, and really what that meant to, uh, what that meant to a dinner table and what that meant to me. Um, my father worked an awful lot. And so it was really rare that I got to spend a lot of time with him. And so one of the ways that I got to spend time with him was when he would go travel to New York or travel to Washington DC to go pick up some of the great wines that he had purchased. And, uh, you know, it was, a, it was a way for me to do that. And so it always became, it, was, it didn't always become, but it was a part of me from the very beginning. And really, it carried me through high school and into college. And when I graduated from college, I remember getting a couple cases of wine from him. And, and really, it, it, it meant so much to me. I always loved it. What was your dad like? I mean, what was he like as a person? He, he loves wine. He was a doctor. Uh, but he really just loved wine. He really started out collecting German bordeaux a little bit of burgundy a little bit of rhone a little bit of things here and there and he really built up an amazing cellar and where did you grow up are you a philly yeah i grew up outside of philadelphia i was born in nashville tennessee uh he did his residency down there and then we moved up to connecticut where he was uh on submarines uh and then he, started- he was a doctor on submarines. Yeah. Yeah, he's taller than I am. He's about six foot three on submarines. Imagine that. That, that sounds uh, a little difficult for uh, the neck. Yeah, no wonder he he went to drinking. That's good. But then we moved to New Jersey, where he started practice, and that's where I grew up and went through high
0: school uh, in Philadelphia. That sounds like a lot of moves, though, at a young age, right?
1: It was, but I don't really remember them.
0: Yeah, yeah. But did you have to like develop a skill set of getting along with new people
1: and stuff? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. The only one I really remember was the last move and that was that was perhaps the most impactful and and that's that's where we moved to where i really spent most of my years growing up where my dad finally had a wine cellar went to high
0: school and just yeah on the submarine he had a
1: on the submarine he had a wine cellar on the submarine it really innovated because well before his time it's tough to get the other kids on board uh, for class for high school but uh... literally got to come up for every now and then (laughs) so where'd you go to school uh, so I went to high school at St. Joe's prep in Philadelphia, and then I went to Davidson college, uh, just outside of Charlotte North Carolina. What were you thinking as a kid? I mean, what was the goal? Uh, you know, I really wanted to be an engineer. Uh, I really wanted to be an engineer. And when I was applying for schools and when I was looking at what I wanted to do for the rest of my life, I thought, you know what? I really want to build things or I want to put things together and figure all of that out. And so I got through a couple of years of college and had taken a lot of mathematics courses and a lot of physics courses. And I got to my Fall semester of my junior year and went to take a quantum mechanics course. And about three days in, I thought, this is not going to work out real well. You weren't uh, seeing the quality of life side? Like it wasn't I, fun? <laughs> I wasn't seeing the understanding of being able to how to finish the course uh, more than anything. So I figured I can't finish this, so I better do something else. Uh, and so I got into mathematics. So I ended up being a mathematics major in college and, and really enjoyed that. Uh, certainly a little geeky and weird, but uh, taught me an awful lot. What kind of skills did you learn there that have carried through later? Yeah, so I spent a lot of time doing obviously pure math, but really spent a lot of time doing business and accounting classes as well. And and when I graduated from college, I ended up being a stockbroker for about six years or so. Uh, miserable time of my life, but uh, I would say it drove me to drink. But it really taught me the business side of life, and it taught me how to look at spreadsheets and numbers and and P&Ls and all of that type of thing. Was that a bull run for the market or the opposite? Uh, It was a bull run until it was not. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Like so many stories of that business. Exactly. Exactly. But, you know, at the same time, it was the best thing that ever happened was being able to get out of that industry really led me to this. Uh, it was always something I was interested in and something that I always loved. And it kind of took one of those moments where it was like, you know what? I'm tired of doing whatever it is that I'm doing and I need to make a clean break. And so we did. So my wife and I made a clean break and tried to figure out what it was we wanted to do. And she went into children's clothing and a couple months went by and she said, you know, you kind of need a job. I said, yeah, you know, I kind of do need a job. And she said, well, you really like golf and you really like wine. Why don't you go see if the golf shop will give you a job for a few hours a week? And why don't you go see if the wine shop will give you a job for a few hours a week? And I did. And I got a job at both of those. Had two part-time jobs, making no money, just doing nothing. No responsibility. And it was phenomenal.
0: Was that the first time in your life you really hadn't had any responsibility? Yeah, absolutely. So that probably felt fucking great. Oh, it was beyond fucking great living.
1: It was just, it was, it was exciting and it was fun. And it was one of those things where we didn't have anything we didn't have any money. We just had each other and we just had life. And it was a really, really great time. Really quickly, I, I learned that I loved wine. I mean, it was literally just stacking shelves and, and stacking boxes, making end stacks in the little, little wine shop in the basement of a department store in North Carolina. And it taught me so much. And I, I, I worked Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and eventually Sunday. Uh, and Sunday I had by myself. And so I would sit there. We had very little business on Sunday being Charlotte, North Carolina, heart of the Bible belt. So I'd sit there and I would just spread books out and just try to learn as much as I can. Uh, that's really what drove me, really drove me a lot.
0: But it also sounds like you kind of connected back with the pleasure principle. Like you were like, yes, I could enjoy this.
1: Oh, I did. And it was just a a couple weeks into the wine business. I got invited to this blind tasting. There was this group in Charlotte where they do these blind tastings every, every month or so uh, and got to taste some really unbelievable wine. I mean, my first blind tasting I went to was we had 1990 Louis Latour Corton Charlemagne. This was 2002. So 1990 Louis Latour Corton Charlemagne. And then during the tasting, there was 1970 Vegas Sicilia and all kinds of stuff. And I was just like, Oh my goodness, this is Unreal. my experience until that point had been with with great bottles of bordeaux and great german riesling but i didn't know what i was drinking i didn't know what i was doing and so to be able to, to take a whole different set of wines and a whole different set of circumstances and put it into this context of oh my gosh this is fun there are people out there that are having a great time just talking about wine drinking wine enjoying it and and i wanted that and i really wanted to be a part of that and so really quickly after i started at the wine shop i got involved in it. And it was amazing. Uh, I used to say, I used to talk to my wife and I used to tell her, I said, this is what I'm going to do until I figure out what I want to do for the rest of my life. Did that
0: imply some patience on her part? I mean, where was she coming from with that?
1: Yeah, she was. She was completely supportive. We had obviously we had gone through a period where we hated what it was that we do, so we need to just take a step back. And what was her background? Start again. She was doing fundraising for University of North Carolina system, and it was you know it was fine. She was traveling a good bit here and there, but we were both kind of just like there's got to be something else to life, uh, and so this gave us an opportunity to do that and. It was something that that from the very beginning, I always had a lot of fun with it. And she had a lot lot of fun with it. I remember the first big night out that I went to when I was in the wine business. We had a gentleman who was in the Army Reserves. And he was a general in the Reserves. And he got called up to go to Iraq. And so we had a going away party for him. And the parts of that night that I remember were pretty spectacular. And the parts that I don't remember were probably even more spectacular. Uh, But I was like, this is just awesome. This is just so much fun. I can
0: make a living, and I can have a great time while I'm doing it. But that seems like a big leap, like part-time at the wine store, spreading out the books on Sundays to board of directors for the quartermaster sommelier. It seems like that's a big, big span of achievement. And what what's that like about? 12 years. 12 years, you, yeah. yeah. A little, about a decade. So, I mean... What happened there?
1: Yeah, so when I I worked for the wine shop for about two and a half years or so and realized that I wanted something a little bit more, something a little bit different, I had competed in a sommelier competition despite never having really worked on the restaurant floor. I started. What was that
0: like? I mean, was that
1: hard for you? It was very hard. hard. I remember the first time I ever did service uh, in front of a group of master sommeliers and other people, and I did horribly. It was miserable. But I learned so much, and I just didn't care how I did. I knew that uh, all all I was there do. To do was to learn. It was kind of funny. There, there was a, a an individual that that I that had called on us when I was working for the wine shop. Uh, and he said, you know, you should really think about doing this. Court stuff. You, he was like you, a rep. Yeah, you might be really good at it. You might like it. And so we sat down one day for lunch, and we went through. And he said, you know, it's not really that hard. You just need to to invest in it and study. And so I did. And and I, I took the intro course in the fall. I think it was 2002. It might have been 2003. I don't remember. But I took it, and I did really, really well at it. And I thought, this is awesome. I had so much fun. I want to learn more. I want to learn everything that I can. I've always had a knack for, for learning things that are completely unimportant in the grand scheme of the world. And so I thought this is a perfect opportunity for me to take that and be able to utilize it in something that's, you know, that I enjoy and maybe I can turn it into a really long-term career. And when I got in the wine business, it was not that this was the end career. I was looking to be a computer programmer. I was looking to do something other than this. But it just so happened that I happened to be okay at it. So after the competition or during the competition, I had met uh, Virginia Phillip, who uh, runs the Breakers, uh, the beverage program for the Breakers in Palm Beach, and she had mentioned at dinner that night that they were looking for a sommelier. I didn't win the competition, but I did pretty well, and I was really happy with how I did. And so I called her up a couple days later, and I said, you know, I actually might be interested in this. Um, Fast forward a little bit longer, fast forward a little bit beyond that, and uh, went down, interviewed, and about a month later started at the Breakers. Where did you live? Uh, At the time, I was in Charlotte, but then I moved down to West Palm Beach. Uh, So that seems like a change, a huge change. Well, it was really funny because my wife had been working in clothing and had been offered an opportunity to move to Chicago to run a store for the company she was working for to run the store for them in Chicago. So either way, we were leaving Charlotte. We didn't know if it was Chicago or if it was Palm Beach. And we decided, you know, let's move to Palm Beach. We really think this wine thing might work out okay. And that's what we ultimately decided. And so I went down, started at the Breakers, the cellar rat for, I don't know, a couple months or so. What was that like? Uh, It was a huge learning experience. I'd never really worked the floor. I had waited tables at a restaurant, you know, one night a week for a few months. But it was a huge learning curve because here I go from not being in the restaurant business at all to being in one of the fanciest dining rooms in the world where service is pinpoint, where it's perfect, where everything has to be spot on. And it was a huge learning experience for me. I went from working in a wine shop with 5,000 bottles of wine
0: to a wine cellar with 30,000 bottles of wine. Did you ever run into an old colleague from the stock firm and be like, oh, hey, bro, what's up? You know, what can I get you to drink? I mean, like, how did it happen?
1: No, I, I, I didn't, but I don't think it would have been an issue. It was one of those things where I was really happy with what I was doing and I knew that I could be good at it.
0: Do you think it gave you an advantage to to be
1: like, yeah, I know how these guys think. I don't know if it gave me an advantage or not, but I certainly knew how to sell. Yeah. Oh, right. That was the big thing. (laughs) I knew how to sell. Oh, there's that. There's that little element of it. People forget about that part of it. It's a sales job. Uh, Yeah. I knew how to sell and I knew how to sell really, really well. And that was what gave me that edge.
0: So when you approached tables, I mean, what was your move?
1: What did you do? My approach was just be very casual and very calm and just, you know, welcome. How can I assist you? How can I, I'm here to help you. I want to get you the best bottle of wine that you want for the amount of money that you want to spend. And that was always the MO. And it was always asking questions to lead to that there's a certain amount of instinct that you have to have to be really great at service to not just service, but hospitality services and hospitality are very different things. But to be really great at hospitality, you have to have that ability to read a situation without any words. And you have to know when someone's uncomfortable. Maybe a couple's come in and they've had an argument. Maybe, they, maybe they're maybe they upset with each other. Or there's a business deal that's very tense that's not going particularly well. You need to be able to read that. And it was something that I was able to do very early on and really enjoy that part of it.
0: I feel like that's the same skill set that you develop when you're in like corporate meetings. Like, you can kind of tell where everyone's feeling just by how they're acting at the meeting without them saying anything. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right?
1: Yeah. And it takes a long time to be able to develop that skill. It's not something that – some of it's innate, but a lot of it is just paying attention and, and watching and learning and listening. Uh, and it's not talking. And that's that's – I'm a quiet guy. People won't think that. especially after this interview – I'm a quiet guy. I like to sit and observe and I like to sit and watch and read a situation before I give a response. And so that in the restaurant business, especially in that high end restaurant business was a huge skill to have because I could very easily sit back. I could ask my questions and let them talk all they wanted to talk. And they would continue to give me clues as to how to sell them something or what it was that they were actually looking for that night.
0: And I feel like that's a restaurant where people have already made the decision that they want to spend money when they go to that restaurant. Absolutely.
1: People didn't come in that restaurant to, to get out for $50 a head. It just didn't happen. It's, it was a restaurant where people came in to celebrate, where people came in to have special occasions. And if it wasn't a special occasion, we made sure that the night was a special occasion for them. That was the MO of the restaurant. And that's what we tried to do every single night.
0: So what was it like working with Virginia? I mean, what was she like as a boss? Uh, She's great. She taught me a lot. I thought it, for a long time,
1: she was, she was really difficult but it goes back to those teachers that you have in school that the best teachers, when you look back on it, were the ones that pushed you and drove you and, and and made you understand you and made you work for it. Virginia didn't give me anything. She made me work for every single thing that I got, and I can never repay that. It's a huge skill. And what was fun for you during that time? I mean, what was what was a good day? Oh, God. I mean, I don't know that I could have ever been in a place where I got to try so many amazing wines and interact with so many amazing people as, as that restaurant. It was certainly a, an environment that, I mean, if I want to taste 61 versus 66 Chateau Latour in a night, all I had to do was sell it. If I wanted to taste how the 90 Romani Conti was tasting versus the 2000 Aishizo, all I had to do was sell it. I had all of these toys and these tools to play with on any given night, and we got to experience so many different things. It's, I, I, I feel blessed that I was able to, to have that.
0: So there was an incentive there for you to make a sale because you wanted to try these things that you'd never had a chance to try before.
1: Really? Uh, absolutely. And a lot of it was that. And, and it wasn't just trying it. It was, oh, my gosh, I had this 90 Grand de La Rose, and it was unreal. And I tried to get as many people to buy it as I could, not because I necessarily wanted them to spend $350 or $400, whatever it was, was because I knew that that was going to make an amazing experience for them.
0: You'd had a good feeling and you wanted to share that good feeling. Without question. Because that actually makes you feel better. (laughs) Well, it it
1: does. I mean, look, it's not inexpensive wine. We're not dealing with an inexpensive restaurant. I had some freedom and some leeway. But again, that's why I always ask the question, how much do you want to spend? And to me, that's a question that's not asked enough. Everybody's afraid to broach the money question. But when you ask it, it's actually a very freeing question, both for the guest and for the sommelier. Because at that point... You know what the, you know what you're dealing with. It's not a question of if I bring this person a hundred and fifty dollar bottle, are they going to be offended because I went too high or because I went too low? Let's just ask the question and say, you know, I want to spend two hundred bucks tonight, or I want to spend hundred dollars tonight, or I want to spend fifty dollars tonight. Doesn't matter. That's, that's to me. That's the job of the sommelier. Is what's the what's the best experience that I can give you?
0: I mean, that almost sounds like a stockbroker approach, though. Exactly. Like, you know, this is how much the stock cost. How many shares would you like? Exactly. You know, this is the recommendation. Like, you can make money in this stock. Which one? This is a good one. Which, how many do you want?
1: You know, well, that's exactly, I mean, to me, it's exactly it. And it's not just stocks and it's not wine, it's sales. Right. It's, it's how, it's what do you want to buy? And it's, it, it, it always comes back to that. And it comes back to, I mean, to me, their sales is very, very simple very complicated, but it's very simple at the same time because there are very simple principles on which people buy things. And when you learn that and you master that and you're able to use it, 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 it it's, it's not about separating people from their money
0: necessarily. It's about giving people a great experience. And were you encountering people who didn't have the same knowledge of sales? Like in your career, have you encountered people who are knowledgeable sommeliers or held successful jobs who just didn't get the sales part of it?
1: Absolutely. It's a huge piece of it. I mean, you can have all the knowledge in the world, but unless you can apply it to, to something that's going to bring in revenue for a company, you're not really employable at that point. I mean, you could be a great sommelier. You can be, have amazing service skills and you could know everything there is to know. But if you can't get people to buy a bottle of wine or a glass of wine, what's the point of you being on the floor? So how long were you at the Breakers? So I was at the Breakers for about three years, nine months or so. I started in March of 2005, and I left in December of 2008.
0: Okay, so again, when a recession happens, essentially.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it was, but that wasn't the impetus for me leaving. Uh, When I started at the Breakers, I was a seller rad, and then I moved to being floor sommelier pretty quickly, and then really started running beverage for uh, our highest-end restaurant and our bar associated with that. And I did that for, gosh, until about... June of 2008. Then we opened up another project and i was put in charge of designing the beverage program from start to finish with no oversight from virginia and it was really my own thing what uh, was that
0: like i mean that seems like a big deal
1: it was a big deal it was a lot of fun it was stressful but it was a lot of fun i had let virginia know that i was looking to to move on to other things uh, my wife had had a child in congratulations in, thank you in in may of 2008 and so i knew that i was looking i wanted to be home on holidays i was getting tired of being on the floor i didn't spend all that long on the restaurant floor so I can't say I was necessarily tired of it but I started relatively late uh and I was 32 33 and I was looking for what can I do next uh, I've always been an ambitious guy and I always wanted to see what can I do next Virginia wasn't going anywhere she wasn't leaving there was no opportunity for me to to move into the role that I wanted at the hotel so I needed to do something else
0: and there's not a lot of restaurants on that island I mean no, not really
1: no and, and there there weren't and and certainly not for what I was looking for Um, so I'd gotten an opportunity to go and try to open up a wine school in Orlando, Florida and moved up there. I moved the whole family up there in December of 2008. And that was, was what it was turned out to not be a very good choice.
0: What were the learning moments out of that? I mean, what did you learn from that experience?
1: The learning moments out of that were that sometimes in order to move ahead, you've got to leave where you are in the first place. And sometimes as you don't leave to get ahead, you leave to leave and it's the act of leaving opens up a lot of other opportunities and a lot of doors for you. Oh, people realize
0: you're kind of looking for
1: something. Well, in there, you're, you're hey. looking for something and you can do it on your own. You're not afraid to go out and be your own person. And you're not afraid to go out and do whatever you need to do for you. That was one of the great things about the breakers was, was that we were so well known and we had such a great reputation. But at the same time, it's the breakers. And you're isolated and, and that's fine. And it's an amazing spot to learn. And I would do it again in two seconds. But I also needed to get out to start making a name for myself to start showing people that, hey, I can do something on my own. I'm not under the breaker's umbrella anymore. And so I did that. And even though what I did was a failure, uh, it was a great failure. And it was a a huge learning experience. I was in charge of everything from getting students to sign up for the course, to budgets, to stocking the wine cellar, to plans, to design, to what color the floor was going to be, all these different things. And it it really taught me that this is not just about wine. I I decided when I got in the wine business that every decision I was going to make I wanted it to be about the wine. I wanted it to first and foremost be about wine, about friends, about family, about places, about experiences, about all of those things that really made me passionate about it in the first place. And so I I thought, great, this is an opportunity to teach other people about that. And I did, just didn't work out
0: that well. What do you think didn't work out about it? I mean, was it that? There was no money. Yeah.
1: <laughs> uh, that will kind of take care of things in the, in, uh, from a job standpoint.
0: But, I mean, were people not responding to the it's all about the wine approach?
1: Oh, no. It had nothing to do with that. It was just simply that there was no money. It was uh, looking into the spring of 2009. There was no money that was being loaned to anyone. It was trying oh, to I open get up it. a wine school in the middle of a, a giant fall and a recession. And there was no startup loans going There up. was nothing. There was nothing, and so we were undercapitalized.
0: I came to learn, and you know. So much of what you do now is involved with education in terms of certification and getting students, so I mean, did it give you a beginning of an insight into how that all goes? It it did. I had been teaching a little bit uh, before that for the court, but this
1: really gave me an idea about how do we get somebody that knows almost nothing to being able to work on a restaurant floor. And being so what's to, the answer to that? I, I still don't know the answer. <laughs> okay, all right. Okay, <laughs> it, it, It's one of those, th- wine is one of those things where, yes, there are schools out there that do a good job up to a particular point, but wine has always been about experience. And it's always been about how do you take what it is that you know and expand on what it is that you know. It's funny, we, we spend our entire lives in school using our eyes and our ears and our mouth. And we don't ever spend any time using our nose and our palate. We don't ever pay attention. We don't ever take classes on how do you taste and how do you smell. And so when you get to adulthood and you actually want to start using these things, and especially in the wine business where you have to start using these things, it's like starting from scratch. It's like being in kindergarten for tasting. And so it's this skill set that how do you teach people a very, how do you teach adults a skill that's very basic but is really not? We're so intimidated by using our, about using our nose and our mouth because we just haven't done it. No one's ever taught us how to do it. And so having that responsibility of here's how you taste and here's how you smell, it is definitely a learned thing and it's definitely a personal thing. Uh, but it's really it's using the world around you and using simple things in the world around you to get people to understand how to taste and how to smell. It's to teach somebody about tannin. The best way to teach somebody about tannin is to put a bag of tea in some water and let it sit there and taste it every minute for 10, 15 minutes until the tannin becomes so unbearable and you feel where the tannin sits. It's the same thing with sugar. You just keep doing these types of things until somebody understands this is where sugar hits me on my palate. This is what this is what these particular things smell like and taste like. And it's getting people to to, to realize that hey, I don't know how to taste and I don't know how to smell. That's a huge moment.
0: But I think a lot of those things that you're saying were things that you had to do originally, right? Without question. Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. There are, there are people that are very gifted tasters, very gifted pe- people that can smell and can pick out things in wine with no problem. And I've always, always been able to do so. But it's such a small group of people that you, people have to learn it. It's definitely a learned thing. It certainly was for me.
0: But that almost reinforced the idea that it is a teachable thing. Because you did have to like learn it. You did have to go through the steps to learn it, right? I mean- it,
1: it, it completely is a teachable thing. Absolutely is a
0: teachable thing.
1: I still, don't, I still don't know how I learned it, but I just know that it was through tasting and smelling. And it was through doing things like going to the grocery store and picking up fruits and vegetables and smelling them. And smelling what asphalt smells like. And picking up grass and rubbing it in your hands. And smelling an oak tree. And putting your arms around an oak tree and smelling what does an oak tree smell like? And what do these different things smell like? What do they taste like? And just gaining that experience and gaining that knowledge and trying to put it into memory as to how do I recall this when I get it in a glass of wine.
0: But I feel like your own personal educational process has become a bigger thing because a lot of your notes for that ended up becoming the basis for the Guildsom educational curricula at the beginning, right? Or-
1: some some of them did. Yeah. I mean that was one of the ways that that I would study was I would take these giant yellow pads. I was never a note card guy. There are a lot of people that use note cards, flash cards, whatever you want to call them. I never used them. I tried it for a week or two didn't work for me. I found that I was memorizing the answers to questions rather than figuring out what questions to ask and figuring out the answers to those. Uh, So I went to yellow pads and I started just memorizing things and and just writing stuff down just over and over and over. And as much as I could about a particular region, it wasn't just enough to memorize the Chateau of 1855, the Bordeaux classification. It was, what are the great percentages in them? Why? What's the soil type difference? What's the climate difference? What's the aspect? Who are the owners? What are their second wines? What are their third? wines why are they that way what was trade like in the 1600s, 1700s 1800s all of these different things you start asking yourself all of these questions and you want to put them down somewhere and you want to put your knowledge down somewhere so i would take my notes and the way that i would know that i knew a region really well was that i would put it on a spreadsheet and i would write it all out from memory and once i knew once i could write out a region by memory i knew that i had a pretty good understanding of the region
0: I mean, when I've done that level of detail and preparation for notes, I've usually found that the reason I'm doing that is because I'm a little afraid that I'm going to get called out and I want to overstudy and overprepare so that I don't get called out. Is that fair? Yeah. So... Going
1: through my my curriculum study, so after I passed the introductory course, uh, when I went to the breakers, right after I went to the breakers, I took the advanced sommelier examination, and I was fortunate enough to pass that the first go uh, in the spring of
0: 2005. Which is not an easy thing to do, especially at that time when it was...
1: Yeah, it was was certainly a big achievement. I was thrilled. Uh, I was really excited to be able to do it. Uh, The following year, uh, I competed in the Best Young Sommelier in America competition, and I made it to the finals. I hadn't been preparing. I wasn't ready in any way, shape or form. And I got to the finals and quite honestly, I, I feel like I embarrassed myself. And I went on vacation the week after and I was miserable. I was horrible. I was, I was a bear. It was a disaster. And I kept saying to myself, I'm never, ever, ever going to let this happen again. And it wasn't that anybody said you didn't do well or you could, it was that I felt I let myself down. And so when I really put my nose in the books and I really started studying hard for the master sommelier exam, it was that it was, I don't want to get to the master sommelier exam and have them say, I'm sorry, you're probably, you know, you don't want to come, you probably don't want to come back. And I, that was the, that was the MO. That was my study MO was all I wanted to do was get invited back for the, for the MS exam again, because I knew I wasn't going to pass it the first time. There's no way. So it, that was it. It was that determination and that was that drive of, I don't want to be called out like that.
0: But you must have witnessed, now that you're more involved with the court, you must have witnessed several people who've been in that same situation and then seen various reactions. Because I think a lot of people fail miserably at some portion of this journey to get through the ML. right? I mean, I mean, there must be some colossal failures and then people will probably respond differently, right?
1: Well, the, the way that I say it and the way that I tell people is, and I, I, I say it to people all the time, is once you get to the examination and once you get to that level, when you're at the exam, there's not really anything else you can do to to be ready for it. So you you have to not care how you do. And I, I don't mean it that you don't care. I mean, it is you have to feel that you've prepared as well as you can prepare. And whatever the results are going to be, that's what the results are going to be. There's an inner calm that comes with a lack of, you know, oh, I've got to do well. I've got to do well. You know what? Either you're going to do well or you're not going to do well. It's already been determined and, and it's already been figured out. And it's not when you enter into a service room that determines whether you're going to do well at service. It's what you do prior to entering that service room that determines whether you're going to do well at service. Same thing with theory. Same thing with tasting. It's all of that is how you do, how you prepare beforehand. And so, yeah, so to me that the, in a lot of people that are successful, not just in this, but in in life, in a lot of these different careers, there's an element of failure. There's an element of, oh my gosh, I need to work harder. And I, I, I like to say to people, and it certainly was for me, I never knew how hard I could work until I worked as hard as I could, and then I worked harder. And it's that kind of mentality that, that really carries me, and that's the way
0: that I approach life. And how did it go that your spreadsheets became the basis for some of the Guild Psalm curriculum? I mean, how did that connection get made?
1: So I had, uh, one of my good friends was Jeff Carruth, and, and he and I uh, passed our advanced sommelier exam together And he had sent an email out to about 30 of us. Uh, saying, Hey, you know, if we're starting this website, if you want to help, we'd love to have you. Uh, and so that was it. I mean, he certainly, I mean, my spreadsheets probably only ended up being a few percent of what the overall site was, but it was one of those things where I felt like I was contributing to something. I know what I enjoyed. We all at the time, all the spreadsheets were all different formats and we try, it was, it was really difficult to be able to take what everybody else was doing and make it so that it was standardized. And it was after, I mean, gosh, I mean, I hadn't updated my spreadsheets in a year or so. So there's a lot of stuff that was out of date. There was a lot of stuff that didn't fit. But it was one of those things where it's how much information, how deep down the rabbit hole can we go on a website and still have it be relevant and have it be meaningful and have it be a resource that people can use. And what was the impetus for that website? Uh, it was really just to expand the sommelier profession, expand wine knowledge around the world, create a community of sommeliers, not just for studying for the Court of Master Sommeliers exams, but for wine in general. And it's its really expanded. It's huge. I served on the Board of Directors for a couple of years with the Guild of Sommeliers. And what we saw during that time was not just an expansion in the U.S. amongst Court of Master Sommelier students, but we started getting people from Society of Wine Educators, WSET students, Masters of Wine students. We started seeing people from other countries come in and start utilizing the website. And I don't even know the numbers now. I'm, I'm I'm not connected with it formally anymore, but I know they're in, I don't know, 60, 70 countries or something like that, and just thousands of sommeliers from all over the world. It's an amazing resource.
0: So what years were you on the
1: board at the Guild uh, I think it was oh nine through eleven. might have been something like that, somewhere in that range.
0: And what do you think was propelling that growth in the interest of sommeliers or potential sommeliers at that time? I mean, what was going on to do that?
1: It was funny. That was obviously during the recession and it was during a time when Restaurants were cutting sommeliers. And so I think a lot of it had to do with people were trying to figure out a way to get ahead to make themselves noticeable, to make it so that somebody would hire them to do something. And I don't know if that's the actual case, but that just my perception is, is that people wanted something to distinguish themselves. Uh, and it was ironic because that's exactly the same time when court of master sommelier programs really started getting ramped up with huge amounts of interest. There was no movie. There was no nothing at that particular time. It was, there was a website, there were courses, you know, courses were selling out. It was growing naturally on its own. It was organic. And to me, it kind of hit this sweet spot of, yes, the recession made people want to delve more into their skill set to develop more things. But it also came, you know, this is we reached critical mass as a profession of more and more and more people see wine as a way to get ahead.
0: So were these a different set of people than might have been sommeliers say 10 years ago or a generation ago? I mean, is it, they look the same or do they act the same as the previous set or is this just a very different kind of person?
1: I hope they don't act the same as the previous set. It's, I don't know that the world can handle that. Um, no, it's, it, the, the, it started to get younger. The, the average age of people getting into not just the restaurant business, restaurant business was always a young person's game. It was always somebody coming out of college that was looking for a job before they got a real job blah, 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 blah. Eventually, people who, who were knowledgeable about wine and had that level of expertise about wine people would start to go to them in the restaurant to make wine recommendations. And soon the managers would notice all of that. But the age started to get much younger and people started getting into restaurants for the sole purpose of getting into wine. To me, we there's, there's a generational shift that's happened because this is really the first generation of people that we've seen where parents were drinking wine at home, where wine was a, it was a it's a commonplace thing. And you're starting to see that in people that were just graduating college, where wine was not a foreign substance. It wasn't for me. I grew up in a household that drank wine, but I was more the anomaly than the norm. Uh, And so we've started to see that. So it started to get this snowball where wine is not mysterious anymore.
0: So you were encountering people who said, yes, I'm interested in restaurants specifically because I'd like a wine education. And you're like, well, we just do wine education. So that might be helpful to you. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And, And that's exactly it. Is, is that you see people who want to gain knowledge in a specific area to help them in their career, whether or not their ultimate goal is to be a sommelier or not. And then you worked on the education community for a while. Yeah. For the court of master sommeliers. So I was fortunate enough to get elected to the board court of master sommeliers in two thousand. Was it thirteen? And what are those
0: board meetings like? I mean, what's that like? What is, what's that about? Oh, I can't tell you that. It's kind yeah, of like, yeah. uh,
1: it's kind of like a spectre. fraternity. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Fraternity,
0: specter, that type of thing. You guys all have rings. And- yeah. We
1: got rings. You got to do, you know, a special handshake, that type of thing. Uh, no, it's, it, it's, it was a bunch of people that love the profession of being a sommelier sitting around trying to solve problems and trying to solve issues that face an organization and face a profession. So what are some of those? To me, the, the issues right now are, growth certainly there's a huge number of people that are looking to both get into the wine industry or advance themselves in the wine industry either on restaurants or through from distributors whoever it may be the world of wine has grown and it's gotten huge and so it's solving that problem what are we really talking about i mean what does that growth as as a percentage look like oh it's uh, i mean it's several hundred percent over just a couple couple years Uh, and that's a scary number Uh, as master sommeliers, we're about 137 or so in the U.S., 140, something like that. That's not a lot of people when you're talking about educating eight, 9,000 people a year at our very basic level. Especially when the vast majority of master sommeliers, their first career, their, their first aim is not to teach. It's to have a, another job. And so the teaching is a side thing. It is a volunteer thing. And so to ask people to volunteer to teach these eight or 9,000 students every year, it can get very difficult. So the resources that we have are not all that great versus the demand. And so it's how do we manage that and how do we make sure that the interested people are able to get the education that they want?
0: So they say like, well, you know, there's only 200 people that have passed this test at a certain time. And it turns out that those are the 200 people that could teach how to pass this test. And there's so many people asking to pass the test that you're starting to get a little stretched and it can't just be run kind of informally anymore.
1: No, it can't be run informally anymore. And so one of the things over the last couple of years at the board meetings that we've done is try to figure out how to standardize some of that and how to, how to make it consistent that if you're sitting down and taking an introductory course in Boston, or you're sitting down in Boise, Idaho, it's basically the same course. We want master sommeliers, we want their personalities to come through and we want their we want their stories to be told because there are a lot of really interesting, fascinating stories. But at the same time, at the end of the day, we want someone to learn about the basics of Burgundy and the basics of Bordeaux. And how do we do that in an
0: effective manner? So we've had to tighten some of that up. But these people coming in for the course, the people who are signing up for introductory courses and then maybe later advanced courses, what's their expectation level? I mean, what are they thinking they're going to get out of this? So the way that it's advertised is
1: that we're, ex- we're expecting people to have some experience in the hospitality industry, dealing with wine, dealing with beverage, alcohol. It says introductory course. It's not necessarily an introductory course. It's We go through things pretty quickly. We'll cover most of what's needed to be known to pass a test. But it kind of goes back to our philosophy and, and what we think of is that, yes, we are an examining body. The Court of Master Sommeliers is a body that examines people. That sounds really bad. Let me start over. <laughs> uh, <laughs> caliper, please. Scalpel. <laughs> that where we, we're an examination body where we test individuals to see where they stand according to our standards. And we understand that, and we respect that. But at the end of the day, what we're really looking for is we're looking for people to come into our courses and examinations with a certain set of knowledge and skill set and leave with a different set of skill set and a different set of knowledge, or at least the drive and the desire to get more knowledge or a different skill set. That's really what we're after at the end of the day. It's also hard for people who don't know a lot about wine to understand how much they don't know, right? That's a huge piece of it. And it's not just people that don't know about wine. It's people that do know about wine. It's it's the people that know a little bit about wine that can be the most difficult because you have a little bit of knowledge. And that's great. And that's wonderful. And and. I love that, but it's how much more can you know? Uh, To me, it's one of the great things about wine and one of the things that keeps me engaged and excited about it is that I know that no matter how much I know, there's always a ton more to know. And the second I know it, it's probably going to change. And so there's always something to keep you engaged and excited about that. And, and when you realize that that's, that is the most powerful part of all of it is that this is not, I can't take a course and boom, I know what I know. Good. I'm good to go for the rest of my life. I don't need to worry about it anymore. It doesn't work that way. Wine is ever changing. It's expanding. It's growing. It's getting bigger, deeper. It's, it's just, it's a very dynamic industry. And to me, that's the piece that keeps it exciting and keeps it so interesting.
0: But aren't there people who approach the courses that you have as kind of like the golden ticket? Of course. You know what I mean? Like, so is that then a challenge for you to be like, you know, this is a continual process of which we can help you along, but.
1: It is. And I think part of what the court does and part of the reason why we don't necessarily publish an outline and a, a curriculum of exactly what it is that you need to know is that we hope to encourage people and get people to develop that passion and develop that desire to learn the next step, to learn more, to always be learning. It goes back to to me what, what a master sommelier is and a master sommelier isn't somebody that knows everything it isn't somebody that knows how to service everything it isn't somebody that knows how to blind taste everything and can identify every wine blind every single time that's that's preposterous that's that's not what we're about we don't preach that in any way shape or form what we do is that you have an idea about where to find the information you have an idea about where to get the information and most importantly you want to find the information and you want to get the information and that is really what it means is sure the service mechanics absolutely there's got to be mastery you've got to be able to do that perfectly it's got to be fantastic yes you've got to have the skills to to be able to blind taste but it doesn't mean that you're perfect at blind tasting it means that you've mastered the skills of blind tasting it means that you can do a pretty darn good job Every single day for the rest of your life, because you have those skills, it doesn't mean you're going to be right all the time. Same thing with theory. Is I don't know the answers. The skill set, the knowledge that I have now versus when I passed the examination eight years ago, completely different. I don't know that I could pass the examination today. But I think it could come pretty darn close, not because I have all the answers memorized, but because I have the knowledge and the experience and the comprehension of the regions and the places and the people and the things that really drive the answers to those questions. And that's really ultimately what we're about is how well do you know these particular areas? How well do you know the people? How well do you know this industry? And if you don't know the answer, can you figure the
0: answer out? But, I mean, hasn't that changed a lot in completely. about the same time that you've been doing this? Completely. Like, you know, because of the internet and computer resources and resources about information have changed a lot, right?
1: Completely. Absolutely completely. It used to be that you could come in and say, you know what, how do you pass the master sommelier exam? Well, first, start by memorizing Sotheby's Wine Encyclopedia. And you'd go in and you'd memorize it and you could do okay at the master sommelier exam. But you wouldn't necessarily pass it. There's always been an element of you've got to figure some of this stuff out. To me, that's where we've gone to is, is you have to figure it out. You have to have the comprehension of a particular region to be able to figure out the answers because you're not going to know the answers to all the questions that we ask, nor should you, but it's how well you figure out those answers and how well you can, how well you can use the knowledge that you have to figure out the answers.
0: So when you're dealing with a younger applicant pool, does it change some of the approaches? I mean, do people who are younger coming out of school approach finding out the information and how to use it differently than people who are older? I don't know if it's that they approach it differently. I think that there's definitely an
1: element of this business that's always been there that's about experience. And I think we're doing a better job of testing that experience now. It doesn't take 25 years to get the experience is what kind of experience do you get how devoted are you to it how much are you paying attention when you have when you're having these experiences you can do in a complete vertical of chateau Latour from 1970 through 2005 but how much are you paying attention to the vintage variation versus this is a really kick-ass bottle of wine And it's when you start looking at it that way that you start developing those experiences of, wait a minute, 1975 was a little bit different than 76. Most of these vintages from the 1970s weren't all that spectacular. I get to the 1980s, 82, really big extracted bold wine. 1983, less extracted, but still a nice bottle of wine. What are the differences that go into those particular bottles of wine and what makes them unique? That is really what it takes.
0: But I mean, I found that those aspects of knowledge have become less relevant in the market. Like I find that That may all be true, and that's kind of how I define a real sommelier, too, is that they know about all these differences of vintages, and they can tell me about all these old wines. But when I actually go to restaurants, I don't encounter lists like that most of the time, and I don't encounter people like that who are sommeliers. I encounter enthusiastic people who are excited about a new producer or something new or a new region, but I I don't see that same outlook. I mean, for me, that's almost like a generational change. When I look at people over 35, they're like, yeah, the difference between these two vintages is this. And when I look at people who are sommeliers who are under 35, they're like, yeah, this is the new thing.
1: I absolutely agree with you. It it really is. It's a, it's a, it's a changing world of sommelier. And I think as the wine drinking generation and the population has gotten younger, it certainly has gone towards that. And there's some of it that I, that I kind of scratch my head and I think that's really a shame. And the other side of it is, well, think about all these new things that are being opened up in the world of wine. The sommelier now has to know far more breadth. Than they used to. It used to be that you could get away knowing all the vintages of Bordeaux and the great class gross and blah, 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 blah. But it's now it's it's you have to know that, but you also have to know, you know, what are the differences between the different regions in Austria? What's the difference between the Federspiel and the Smaragd when you're dealing with uh, FX Pikler or whoever it may be for this particular wine? And the sommeliers today know that. And it makes it really interesting. And to me, it makes better food and wine pairings. It makes a different experience to it. To me, because that generation is a younger drinking generation as well, is you don't necessarily have people looking to go out and spend $500, $800, $1,000 on a bottle of wine all the time. You're looking at people trying to spend $50, $60, $80 on a bottle of wine and get something really unique and cool and spectacular that they can go tell their friends, hey, I was at XYZ and had this spectacular bottle of wine it's not name collecting anymore. It's not about collecting the, the great vintages and the great producers and the great vineyards. It's about collecting the producers that are really cool and are fun and you can find and are great with your food that might be off the beaten path.
0: So how much has the change in what restaurants are today changed the applicant pool that you see showing up in your classes? So, I mean, is that a direct link or is it different?
1: Uh, I don't know that it's changed the applicant pool all that much. I, st- I, I think the examinations take care of a lot of what gets through and what doesn't get through. But I think the applicant pool is much broader. Uh, our examinations have become much broader as a result of that. But they're also pretty darn deep. The idea of the Court of Master Sommeliers is, is to be able to take somebody at any particular level and drop them in a restaurant anywhere in the world and have them be able to function at a particular level. That's the, that's the whole MO. So you take somebody and you drop them in Istanbul, you, you drop them in Marrakech, you drop them in wherever it may be, they're going to have an understanding about wines and, and wine service that can carry them through a particular restaurant.
0: So do you see a lot of international applicants in the pool? Like, are there people coming from other countries to take these tests?
1: Yeah, we, we do see a good bit. Uh, we're seeing a lot more from Asia, obviously a lot from South America recently as well. We've started to expand a good bit into South America and, and do a lot of courses down there. And those are really, really, really well-received.
0: Yeah, so South America is
1: exhibiting a lot of interest. South America, Mexico, Canada. Uh, I was just over in in London doing the Court of Master Sommeliers EU Master's exam. There, I mean, we got people from Norway and Poland and Germany and Asia and South Africa,
0: all kinds of different places. It's It's huge. So in my younger test-taking days, sometimes I would take tests, not necessarily from the court, you know, sometimes from other programs. And I would think to myself, you know that's cool about wines of romania but you know i'm selling a lot of california cab back at the restaurant that's just what my audience is interested in and i get that it would be cool to have this certification or have passed this test but doesn't seem to have a lot of relevance in terms of content and when you talk about being able to drop people in to different places and you talk about people coming from different countries i mean how do you test for that you know if i'm in ottawa and my local market is huge on Ottawa Chardonnay if there if that exists I don't even know <laughs> you know like how do I make a test that's relevant to that person as well as the person in Mexico City because I I find that what they're actually required to do at their job seems to change so much based on demographic. I mean, we don't all drink the same globally yet, right?
1: No, we absolutely don't. And, and that's absolutely a challenge that, that we face is, is that how do you make a course or an examination relevant to a market and at the same time make it a global examination and make it a global course? We look at all of those things. When we do tests, especially at the introductory level and at the certified level, we're looking at very broad market things. We're looking at how widely distributed are these particular wines and brands and styles, and not just in the United States, not just in Canada or Mexico, but how widely distributed are they in the world? You know, is it reasonable to expect somebody in Mexico and Canada and Peru and Australia to know what Grand Cru Chablis tastes like? Probably. Probably. You know, is it the same thing for people to be able to identify uh, Argentinian Malbec? Yeah, all of that kind of stuff. So we're really looking at big global things. From a knowledge standpoint, the knowledge is the knowledge and the knowledge is there and whether you're in Canada or whether you're in Japan or whether you're in Korea or whether you're in Germany the knowledge is still there yes you may focus yourself more on the particular wines of your region or where you come from but that doesn't mean that our test necessarily focuses on your particular region you might specialize in that you may have a particular interest in that Our courses and exams don't limit people to depth of knowledge in particular areas.
0: It's just a broad test of how well do you know the world of wine and beverage alcohol. Would it be harder for someone to take the test who is not based on a list with classics? If I come from a dining room and I'm dealing with Burgundy and Bordeaux and German Riesling all the time, that seems like it might give me an edge up to taking such a test, as opposed to if I'm working in a restaurant, they're like, yeah, we're just doing Uruguayan varietals. I mean, and I guess that's just the way the world works, right? I mean... But. Yeah,
1: yeah, it is. I mean, we're seeing a huge number of uh, Italian restaurants pop up in the U.S. again. I mean, Italian wine is huge in the United States, but Italian wine doesn't encompass more than 25 whatever percent, sometimes less, sometimes more of, of our introductory certified examination, whatever it may be. We don't have a huge number of Italian varietals that we'll blind taste to. So it's how do you play into that? It's again, it goes back to you can have a specialty and you still have the specialty but you still have to know it. It's you can't be a great knee surgeon unless you know how to operate on the rest of the body at the same time. And so that's really what we're looking at is we're looking at it when you peel it all back how broad do you know the world of beverage alcohol? How deep do you know it? Yeah, you might have your specialties, great. That particular part of the exam will be easier for you. Wonderful. I had my specialties. I knew what I was really good at. I knew what I enjoyed. But that doesn't mean that I had, didn't have to learn everything else. And that's what we're really looking for is that incredibly well-rounded individual who, yes, there are restaurants who specialize in Burgundy and specialize in Riesling or specialize in Bordeaux. Great, fantastic, wonderful. That doesn't mean that we can take them and put them in a restaurant in Berlin and have them perform at the level that we want them to perform at.
0: And what about performing on the business side? I mean, so much of your career has been, as you said, you were good at sales. And so if someone passes the test, but then they go to work in a restaurant and some of the functionality of the restaurant side is missing, I mean, where does that leave the test? I mean, where does that leave the credibility of the test?
1: Yeah, so we don't just test on how well you can taste and how well you can serve and how well you, how much you know about wine and, and all of it. It's how, can you run a beverage program? Uh, so we do test on business aspects. Can you do basic math calculations, even at the certified sommelier examination level. Can you do basic business math at our advanced sommelier course? We do entire section on business of wine and how to calculate uh, anything from, uh, from gross profit to whatever it may be, we go through a huge amount of business in there. Not just numbers, but in actual business scenarios. We go through ethics. How do you handle particular things? What are the laws in your individual markets? What are the laws in your states? What do you have to adhere to? How do you deal with distributors? How do you deal with suppliers? How do you deal with incentives? How do you deal with these different things that go into really running a beverage program? How do you do staff training? Uh, We routinely ask people to talk to us as if they were training a staff Uh, and it's how do you do that? Because it's not just how much do you know, it's how much do you know and how well can you communicate that to other people so that they're either going to buy from you or they're going to sell something that you want them to sell. When we split apart the advanced sommelier examination and advanced sommelier course a couple of years ago, that was one of the things that I really wanted to have put in place was a business element to it. We all saw that there was a need for it, but it became a way for us to say, you know what? We can take a huge portion of this course. And by huge portion, I mean, I don't know, a tenth of it or so, and devote it entirely to business. Uh, we want people to be able to go out and get hired by employers and employers come back to us and say, this person knew exactly what we thought that they would know. That's the ultimate end game.
0: Were you seeing situations where people were passing the test, but weren't holding down jobs? You know, there's
1: always been that everybody's got their own personality because just because you pass a test doesn't mean that you're a good employee. doesn't mean that you're going to get a job. doesn't mean that you're going to get past an interview. doesn't even mean you're going to get an interview. So there's certainly a difference there between passing a test and getting a job. And you've got to be able to do both of those things. You've got to, sure, if you want to pass the test, that might open some doors for you, but it is not going to get you the job.
0: One of the things that the court has done quite well is get people jobs. I mean, I feel like the job network part has been really profound in changing the face of how important the court is in America.
1: I think you're right, Levy. And I think part of the reason for that is, is people are understanding that you can't just pass a test and get a job anymore, that they're developing marketable skills beyond just the world of wine, beyond just the world of spirits, that that they can put together a profitable beverage program, or they can put together whatever it is that they need to put together. They're a great educator. They're great at talking about wine and simplifying it, making it so that other people can understand it. That's really, to me, what's changed. and And we're seeing more and more master sommeliers who are amazing at that kind of thing. I mean, I'd like to think, yes, it's, it's, it's my organization, but I'd like to think that there's a great number of master sommeliers who, who do something that nobody else can do. And that's remarkable. And I think people are using, are realizing how to market themselves to be able to get those jobs.
0: So with culinary schools, we saw a huge rise in culinary school applications, and maybe some of that was driven by television and more chefs on TV and chefs in books, those people came. And then I feel like several of them graduated and said, oh, no, I don't want to work in restaurants. I want to do something related to my culinary training, but I don't want to work in a restaurant. And then people were like, cool, that's great. You're going to do something in media. Do You know, you know about food. You're going to be a writer. You're going to do this thing. You're going to produce a TV show, but you know about food. Awesome. But I feel like with sommeliers, when people go to take the course, they pass and they say, "Well, I I passed, but I, I don't want to be a sommelier. I feel like it's been like you're an asshole. You left the course. <laughs> you know, like how could you not be on the floor all the time? Like what do you mean you don't want to be a sommelier? Like you know you pass the test just to leave. Like I feel like it's demerits as opposed to being like wow, that's so creative. You want to do something different."
1: Yeah, I think there's there's an honor amongst individuals that have worked the floor. And it's, it's one of those things that I work the floor, I work the floor, I work the floor. And that's great. And the floor is fantastic. And to me, it's one of those things that... When you work the floor, you develop a certain set of skills that you can't get anywhere else. There's nowhere else to get it. I say the same thing about working retail and wine is that uh, to me, everybody in the the world of wine needs to have worked retail and needs to have worked on a restaurant floor. Because the skills you learn stacking boxes and stacking shelves and running bottles and being under the heat of pressure in the middle of service on a busy Saturday night when you're breaking records in your wine sales – that's a different skill set than you can learn in a lot of other spots. And so, yeah, there's kind of an honor there. But it's like anything else. as As the world changes, so so do people's desires and and as the why as the wine world has gotten bigger and it has gotten much, much, much bigger in a very short period of time, the jobs that are available have grown. I mean, I certainly took advantage of it. i I left the restaurant floor six and a half years ago, and I don't look back on it in any way, shape or form, it was one of the great decisions that I ever made. I had a family, uh, I wanted to be at home for the holidays. I have bad knees. I have bad feet. I just, I wanted something a little bit different and,
0: and it led me to the job that I have, but I feel at the same time, as you say that, that the court has also said like, you know, we really want to focus on people who have a job in restaurants
1: and we do. We do. We're, we are first and foremost for the creation of master sommeliers. And in our eyes, the best way to become a master sommelier and the way to be successful during our examination process is to have a significant amount of floor experience.
0: But it feels like there are two complementary things as opposed to the same thing. As wines
1: change, so have people's desires and, and wants and, and what they can do with it. It, it, it hasn't been all that long where educators were working for large suppliers or working for distributors or people that had different skill sets could do things other than work in restaurants. And it's not to say that people who work in restaurants aren't phenomenal. They're some of the most amazing wine people in the world have worked in restaurants their entire lives. And they're quite honestly, some of the most incredible people I've ever met. Uh, it's what they want. And it's about what you want. I, I think a lot of it has to do with the opportunities available. It's not necessarily that there are more opportunities available. It's that there are a greater number of opportunities available. And by that, I mean the number of jobs that you can have is still about the same. But the number of those jobs available has grown exponentially. And a lot of the places that I know that I look for when I'm hiring people is I look for restaurants. I look for people that have worked in restaurants and have been sommeliers and know what it takes to sell to restaurants and what it takes to sell to
0: diners. Because it's such a big component of the wine business. Completely. Still today. Huge. So you were elected chairman in 2015. And why did you decide to put yourself up for that? And then when you got it, what was your mandate? I mean, what was important to you? So I decided to put myself up for it because I really liked the direction
1: that the court was going. Very, very passionate about it. I remember coming back the very first day of the introductory course, and I came back and I said to my wife, I said, I want to be a master sommelier. And she said, well, why do you want to do this? well, I really want to drink with these people because they were talking about what they were drinking and I was like, this sounds just amazing. It sounds phenomenal. It sounds exactly what I want. And having served on the board and having taught a great number of classes, I saw the direction that we were going in and I saw the skill set that I had and i thought you know what i think i can bring some things to the organization that might be able to help us out i certainly don't have the answers i don't have very many answers i don't know that i'm any good at what it is that i'm doing Uh, but it's something that i love and i care so much about the organization what my mantra has been what my vision has been for the organization is to create consistency it's to continue to create fairness it's to manage the growth and it's to create a more solid organization that has both respect and, quite honestly, attention from the world of wine. It's an organization that is full of a lot of dynamic individuals that bring an awful lot to the table. And it's how do we encourage people to, to use master sommeliers? How do we encourage people to use sommeliers, to use Beverage professionals. I mean, we're seeing. I I entered this at a time when we see a lot of restaurants and a lot of other jobs require that people have taken and passed at least one of our one of our levels. It's a huge thing for that. That's that's a pretty remarkable and weighty thing because that provides a huge burden to make sure that the individuals that we're saying are certified sommeliers or our introductory sommeliers actually have that particular skill set. There's a lot of weight that goes along with that. We're at a time where growth is is magnificent. That's a great word for me to use because it's it's amazing how fast we're growing, but it's still its it's a wonderful thing that this many people see us as a great organization that they that they trust us. They trust us to
0: certify their knowledge, to certify their skill set. It's a huge burden. Uh, and why do you think they trust you to do that I mean Why is it that people say like, yeah, someone else is going to tell me how to enjoy this and it's going to be you guys? (laughs) No, I'm serious. I mean, you know, sometimes I wonder.
1: Yeah, I, I think that they trust us because of the level of individuals that we've turned out at our various levels. And there's a skill set. Master sommeliers, I mean, we, we've all got different personalities. We've all got a lot of great skills. We've all, got our, we've all got our specialties, but there's a level of knowledge and a level of professionalism that comes with that. And at each of our different levels, you have that. And, and to me, that's what people see is that you see you're an advanced sommelier, that means something. And and that to me is where we're starting to see a lot more relevance. It's not just master sommelier. It's at the other levels as well that people are saying, "Oh, you're you're
0: a certified sommelier. You're an advanced sommelier." That carries some weight now. So it seems like what really happened was tremendous growth, fueled what was kind of like a loose knit, kind of almost kind of mom and pop organization into something more serious and dare I say, more professional on the organizational level. Is that true? Yeah, and that's one
1: of the things that I've really tried to do. The previous chairman, Greg Harrington, he he really, he really put us up with some good policies and procedures to follow to make sure that we were going on that path. And certainly prior chair people as well did the exact same thing. But that's really been my strong suit is, is operations and, and putting us on a path where we've got consistency, where our examinations across all levels are very consistent. And so if you're taking the advanced sommelier examination in March or you're taking it in September, it's the same examination without it being the same examination. We're getting the same quality of people passing no matter when you take it. And that's a huge thing because we can't have variations in quality. We can't have variations in difficulty and and still expect to be relevant. When someone says I'm an advanced sommelier or I'm a master sommelier, it's got to be there. And if it's not there,
0: that's a that can be a problem. And so we take that extraordinarily seriously. So putting in some systems and some fundamentals that can allow you to grow in a way that is consistent. Absolutely. Our
1: candidates and students tend to think that there's this this level of, oh, you're good, you're not good. You're good, you're not good. There's so, uh, that doesn't even enter into our realm. The points are the points, and people either get them or they don't get them. It's funny how the points really do tell whether someone's ready or not and whether someone passes or not. It's not a—it's not an old boys club. It's not a, we don't pick and choose who, who gets in. Uh, if you pass, you're in. And we don't make it so that people don't pass or do pass. You either do or you don't. And we've gone and put in steps and procedures that make sure that it's very transparent, at least from our side of it, as transparent as it can be, so that that kind of stuff doesn't happen. We want people to come in and feel like they got a fair great shake at what it is that they're trying to do.
0: Is that part of the appeal from people who feel like they may be excluded from what a sommier traditionally is? People who maybe don't fit the stereotype of the sommier who feel like, well, I can get this credential and then be a sommier. You know, is that part of the appeal for them? I think it is. I, I see it two ways. Is one way is
1: is that in order to really get into being a, an advanced sommelier or a master sommelier, you have to be a sommelier. And so you're not a sommelier when you pass the sommelier examination. You're a sommelier prior to that. You're not a master sommelier once you pass the master sommelier exam. You have to be a master sommelier to pass the master sommelier exam. That's how it's designed. That's how, that's how we, we make them. And it sounds trite and it sounds you know like everything else. It is what it is, but it's, it, it really does hold true. We want great sommeliers. And we want people who come out of our programs to be able to go and be great sommeliers. But they need to be a great sommelier before they come in and and take our courses and programs.
0: Our courses and programs aren't going to make you something that you're not. So one thing that was interesting to me about you is that you kind of were inspired by having these gleeful moments with wine. And it propelled this whole professional career. But a lot of times when I go to tastings where people want to achieve what you have, have achieved, like that's their goal, to, you know, to get the crude cup, to pass the exam, to go on further. The glee part, I don't always see so much. I see a lot of really seriously minded, focused, intent, professional people, but I don't see that same sort of cut loose that I used to see maybe with the previous generation of sommiers because when I think of, the generation before the current crop or the generation before that you know these are the same guys who are like yeah i like rock and roll concerts i also enjoy a good glass of wine like there was a little bit more of that kind of vibe around not everybody but a little bit more of that like yeah let's play the rolling stones let's drink some wine a little bit more would i actually kind of associate with baby boomers like a little bit more like yeah this is part of us cutting loose and i feel like when I look at millennials who are trying to pass the test, I feel like cutting loose is the last thing they're thinking about. I feel like they're taking it very seriously.
1: Yeah, and that's that's been a change that we've seen is that, I mean, I got into it because I loved it and I still love it. And I always wanted it, to, as I said in the beginning, I always wanted it to be about wine. It's still about wine for me. At the end of the day, I really want to have a great bottle of wine. I had a great lunch today with some great bottles of wine and I got real geeky and it was awesome and it was fantastic and I got all excited about it. And I think that the more that we can encourage young wine professionals to just go out and experience wine. Experience having a great bottle with some friends. It's not necessarily about having the coolest, funkiest, weirdest bottle of wine. It's about having a great bottle of wine that you enjoy and it's about who you're enjoying it with. Uh, you know, there's, there's the old story of, of people that go to Germany and they go and buy a bottle of wine out of somebody's garage and they're on vacation and they're sitting in the Mosul and having just an amazing experience. And it's phenomenal. It's fantastic. And the bottle is perfect and everything's awesome. And they buy a case and they bring it home and they open the stuff up and it sucks because you take the moment in the experience out of that bottle of wine. It's no longer the great bottle of wine that it was. The greatest bottle of wine I ever had was served out of these awful, horrible glasses out of somebody that had no idea how to open the bottle of wine. And it, to this day, it was about the people. And yeah, the wine was spectacular, but it was about the people and the friends. And, and, and that is something that I think is, is it, there's a lot of joy that gets lost in wine. And the more that we can just remember, you know, this isn't brain surgery. We're making people happy and you should make yourself happy. That's what wine's about. So I think the more we can encourage that, the better off we are. But I agree with you. We don't think we see it enough.
0: I mean, I see a lot of serious-minded kids trying to become MSs. Is this fair to say? Yep. I mean, more so than the previous generation. With the previous generation of MSs, a lot of times I feel like, yeah, as soon as this is over, bro, let's go pop some beers. That's the attitude. Like, this is cool. I enjoy this. We enjoy teaching people. And when this is over, let's go pop some beers by the pool. Like, that's the thing. But when I look at the young people, I don't get that vibe. I get, which, you know, for better or worse, I get vibe like this is a very directed thing that they're doing.
1: Yeah. And it, I think it's one of the things why we've seen some of the pass rates go down at our higher level exams is that people are trying to pass the test. Rather than understanding that the test is life, it's not passing the exam. It's, it's the experience, it's the accumulation of experiences that you have. And you can race and study as hard as you want to, to be able to try to pass a particular test because you think it's going to get you something. It's not. Without the experience to go along with it, it doesn't, it's a little bit hollow and, and you need that experience to really be able to make the most out of whatever it is that, that you're that you're trying to get, whether it's Master of Wine or, or Certified Wine Educator or WSET or Court of Master Sommeliers, whatever it may be. It doesn't matter. It's If you don't have the experience and haven't lived the experience, it's not meaningful. I know when I passed the Master Sommelier exam, one of the great regrets that I have is that I was very fortunate to get through on the first time, but I look back on it and I think, you know what? there's some experience there that I missed. And it took me a few years to be able to get that experience, to be able to feel confident that great. You know what? I think I'm a master someone I know. And, and it's, it's kind of this, this change that happens because it, it does take some time to understand what that means and to understand, you know what? It's not just about having all of this stuff memorized. It's about how do I talk about wine? How, how do I, how do I talk about it with friends you know, what are we going to go drink? Let's go drink some Schlitz. Let's go drink some Pabst Blue Ribbon or whatever it may be. And yeah, let's go. We're done doing this. Let's go have a
0: great time in the pool. There's something to that, that, that it's supposed to be fun. But I mean, is it harder to convince the younger people as the age demographic has shifted that the experiential part is as important as the knowledge part? It's it's very difficult. It's very difficult. And I do think that the, that is, for a large part, a generational thing,
1: is that there, this isn't a college course. This isn't a college examination. Uh, we don't give you the syllabus. The syllabus is the world of wine. And I'll I'll take it back to what Doug Frost told me the first time I ever asked him for advice on what I needed to know about. How do I study for the advanced sommelier exam? And he looks at me and he picks up a bottle of wine and he says, you need to know everything that it can appear on a wine, spirit, beer, liquor, water bottle, whatever you can drink, you need to know about it. And to me, that kind of stirred my, my brain to think, all right, it's not about what I read in a textbook. It's about what's on the bottle. And so in order to have that, you need to have bottles. And in order to be able to learn that, you need to have the bottles in front of you. And the only way to do that is to put the bottles in front of you.
0: But, you know, whatever it was 10, 15 years ago when I was taking the test, I heard people enunciate that too. And for me, I started to think that sometimes it was part of the foundational reasoning why people would be like, well, tell me all about Fernet Branca. Tell me all about Baiju from China. Tell me all about this obscure beverage that does have a label and that word is on the label, so you better know it. And I feel like now, maybe I'm wrong, but I feel like now from the top, from you and from others, what I see more is people saying like, yeah, don't pass this test and like put a bunch of obscure shit on the list and then get fired because we don't want you to do that. Like we specifically don't want you to do that. (laughs) I mean, is that fair to say? I feel like almost it's changed a little bit where it's the emphasis is like, yeah, let's not learn about every crazy beverage because what that might inspire you to do is put them all on your list. Whereas really what you, we would prefer you to do is keep your job. Is that
1: it, when it comes down to as we talked about in the very beginning at the end of the day, we're salespeople. Uh, that's what the world of wine is, is you're trying in, in the world of beverage alcohol is you're moving one beverage to somebody else and you want them to experience it, or you want the person that they're going to sell it to, to experience or the person that they're going to sell it to, to experience. Um, so we can't forget that. And you can't sell somebody something that they don't want to buy. And we kind of forget about that. We, we forget that, yes, this is a business. You can have an entire list full of really geeky, weird, esoteric stuff as long as you have the clientele to support that. But most restaurants don't have that. And so there's that balance there of wines that people want to buy and wines that you want to sell. And it really does come down to what is your clientele? What are the goals of the restaurant? What's the food like? How many covers are you doing? It's, it's great to be able to have a lot of play toys and a lot of things to be able to experiment with, but if it's not selling and it's not generating dollars, you're very, very quickly
0: going to find yourself without a job. Are some of these people coming in who are expecting this test to give them a leg up or a golden ticket, are they going to be mad in a few years when they can't immediately get a job and it doesn't seem like the golden ticket paid off? I mean, I just, there's so many thousands of people who want to come through. I understand that the wine market is getting bigger. Are they going to like burn you in effigy in 10 years when they're like, fuck you, man, I paid $20,000 to pass this test. And I thought I was going to be on TV, you know, and then now I'm not.
1: Yeah. I mean, there's certainly that, that, element to deal with, but it's like anything in life. Just because you do something doesn't mean somebody else is going to notice. There's always somebody else that's doing something different, that's more famous, that's better, that whatever it may be, it's quite honestly, it's life. I, I can't necessarily worry about that. The only thing I can worry about is making sure that the people get through our tests are where we want them to be. And I you know, at, at the master sommelier level, it is not just an examination on your wine knowledge and your service skills and your tasting ability and all of these things. It takes a lot of, of life lessons to be able to get through it. And so we, we, we tend to see a lot of people get through the master's exam that have a lot of those skills and are able to, to take it and say, you know what, I know that if I want to get on TV, there are other things that I need to do. And great, you know what? So do those things. And there's nothing preventing anybody from doing that. But just because you do it doesn't mean that it's going to happen. But I can't control
0: any of that. Do you think that some people are looking for a big return on this thing? Like they come in, right? I mean, at this point, there's been a second movie is about to come out. I mean, it seems like people are like... Oh, I want to be part of that, like uh, movie. Completely. There's movies, there's TV
1: shows. Being a sommelier has never been more popular. It's glamorous, it's flashy. People see all of this really sexy, fun side of things. You know, at the end of the day, you're not going to get the sexy, fun side of it unless you do the work on the back end. And that's the part that nobody else sees. But yeah, I, I think there is a lot of that. There's a good bit of, hey, how come I'm not on TV? How come I'm not in the movie? I want to be in the movie. I'm going to be the guy. I want to be the man. I want to be the person that everybody flocks to, you know, to me, that's not what sommeliers are about. Sommeliers historically have always been kind of the unseen ghost in the restaurant where they're there to do their job and do it perfectly and and run tables and make sure that things are going perfectly and make sure that everyone has an amazing experience and gets great beverage service and gets to enjoy these incredible things that they wouldn't have otherwise gotten. And so to me, it's kind of odd because sommeliers have never been about, let's be in the spotlight. It's been about, let's be in the background. And now that sommeliers are in the spotlight, it's kind of, I don't know, there's a little bit of uneasiness there. But at the same time, it's what happens when professions get attention from people outside of their profession. Uh, the, the world is, not maybe not the world, but certainly in, in the United States, wine has never been more popular. It's the, it's the largest consumed beverage in the U.S. We're the highest, consu- highest wine-consuming country in the world. So wine's really popular, and it's growing, and it's growing huge. And so, yeah, it would make sense that the people that service that wine and pick the wines that go on those wine lists would start getting some of that attention. It's still a little bit uneasy.
0: But how do you manage those expectations for people coming in? I mean, does that seem like a challenge for you? It, it is.
1: It's a challenge, but it's only a challenge in that we need to make sure that the expectations that we create are great. You can be a master sommelier. What you do with it is on you, and that's something that was always instilled in me: is you can do all these things, you can do whatever you want to do. It's what you do with it that matters. Being a master sommelier isn't going to get you on TV. It's not going to get you in newspaper articles. It's not going to get it's not going to get you a job. You've still got to do all of the other work on the on the back end.
0: And outside of the test, just the sommelier profession in general, why has it become more prominent? I mean, what about it has caused it, this to happen? You said that these people are always in the background. Now they're on TV. I mean, why has that happened? It, to me, it's happened because, again, the general
1: public is really interested in wine there's been almost a little bit of a shift. It's The shift hasn't been so much that the importers are shaping the wine market. They certainly are. It's now gone to the people writing wine lists that are shaping the wine market. They're dictating what the importers bring in and what the trends are, not the other way around. And that's a shift that's happened in the last few years. It, I mean, you have some of the great importers in the world They really dictated the great styles and, and, and the things that you saw dotting wine lists all over the country for decades. And now you're seeing some sommeliers drive it differently. As we talked about earlier, yeah, you've got some weird esoteric wineless out there that are in business that are doing very, very, very well that 10, 15 years ago would have just flopped in in six months or so. Uh, So those people need wine, they need different wines, they need interesting wines. And so they're driving the importers and driving suppliers and driving distributors to constantly find new things and to bring in new things to present to them that they can then present to their guests. And so a lot of the sommeliers are out there driving what their guests are drinking, and that's really changing, that's changed the landscape of wine. At the end of the day, though, the vast majority of, of wine consumers in the U.S. are drinking the same things that they've always drank. And we still see a huge amount of that. And so a lot of what we talk about with sommeliers is a very, very small percentage of the overall wine business. It can be very impactful as a volume amount, but it is still a very small part of the wine
0: business. And I bet you see a lot of what you're just talking about during your day job at premier, right?
1: Yeah, huge, huge. I mean, the vast majority of what I look at are not the, 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 the 15 cases of X, Y, Z that I sell. It's the hundreds of thousands of cases of something else that gets sold. And when you look at it that way and you realize that, oh my goodness, there's one brand that's in a month. What my entire team will sell in a year, that's pretty, it's awe inspiring. It lets you know what the general public is still drinking, but again, that's not necessarily all the people that are going out to the restaurants that where sommeliers are working. Sommeliers are, are employed in restaurants where the business can dictates that they need a sommelier to drive those new innovative beverage programs. It's not like every pizza joint in the U.S. has a sommelier. There's just not a need for that. They can have five wines by the glass or three or 10, whatever it may be. And a lot of it can be fairly basic. And for most people, that's fantastic. And that's really enjoyable. I know I go to pizza joints all the time and I'll just order a glass of Chianti and I don't really care what the producer is. I'm going to enjoy it with my pizza. But when you get into and you go out and you have a great dining experience or you want
0: a great dining experience, you kind of want a great wine to go with it. How else has your day job informed the sideline, which is, you know, a separate job that you do for the quartermaster sommeliers? I mean, you have a job as director of wine for a large distributor in Florida.
1: Yeah, so I spend a lot of my time managing people, and and I spend a lot of my time finding new wines and finding new producers, and buying, and and looking at inventories, and figuring out what what to sell, uh, and what I want to buy, and what I want to look at next. And it's helped me in. With the court of master sommeliers, in that I spend a lot of time talking to sommeliers. I spend a lot of time out in the marketplace, talking with not just sommeliers but servers and and talking with with bartenders and talking with people who are the direct contact with the consumer. I spend a lot of time talking to consumers as well. What are consumers looking for? What do they want? And a lot of that goes into what do we do from a court perspective where is where are the trends in beverage alcohol you know we've seen a lot of a lot of shift away from super fine dining white tablecloth restaurants to slightly more casual restaurants but there's still an expectation of very fine high level service with those with those establishments great so how do we take that and turn it into what goes on with our examinations. I won't give away the scenario, but I was just in Burgundy and I remember sitting down and I ordered a glass of something and what happened just blew my mind because I thought this is not something that someone would think would normally happen, but it happened anyway. And it happened in real life. This wasn't a, something that was, that was concocted in my brain. It happened in real life. And so, how do we use that and see if see if sommeliers can handle these different scenarios? So, I spend a lot of time doing that. The business side of it certainly is huge because good or bad, being chairman is about running a business and making sure that the numbers add up at the end of the day, and making sure that the capacity and the students that we have all work with the instructors that we have, and making sure that you know if we want to do a course in Korea, that we've got the ability to do that, or we've got a course. Want to do a course in Peru? That we want to do that. What are the laws associated with that? And so, there's a lot of overlap between those two things but there's a lot of things that are separated as well i'll say i've I've learned a huge amount from being chairman that i wouldn't have learned just by doing my paying day job what things international trademark law uh dealing with legalities dealing with policies procedures human resource things that i didn't think that i would ever have to that i would ever encounter in my life but yet you do and so there's a lot of that that comes out of it. It's it's managing things from start to finish. It's how do you manage website design? How do you manage, you know, how do you pick colors? Is the font right? The font's too big. It's too small. All of those little nitpicky things that I don't necessarily have to worry about in my, in my day-to-day job uh, that really come into play. So it's a global look at business, not necessarily just a sales side
0: of things, but a global look at a business from ground up. So are you forecasting that this sommelier trend in terms of interest in being a sommelier is far from over? I
1: think it's far from over. I don't know exactly how how much longer we have with this rate of growth. Uh, it's not stopping. It's, it's actually been a little scary. I'm a little surprised that it's gotten as big as it has as quickly as it has. And for us, from my organization standpoint, as we continue to expand to other countries, that's taking a, a a great deal of time and energy as well. And there's growth there. There's huge growth in other countries, not just in the US. And so it's not just a US thing. This is becoming a worldwide thing. And that's where I see, and we may slow down in the US. I don't see in the next year or two, but even if it slows down in the US, there's growth
0: in other spots that are going to continue to propel it. And how has different parts of this country responded to the court? I mean, I feel like traditionally it was really strong in places like Palm Beach, places that were resort communities, places that had significant hotel properties, places that had some sort of amusement park property or some other vacation or luxury property. And now I see it moving into different sectors, more urban sectors of the United States. How do you see that?
1: Yeah, so one of the things we've seen recently, and it's only been in the last 10 years or so, is especially in the Northeast Corridor. It was an area where the, the court, for one reason or another, had never really – I'll use the word penetrated – but it had never really been a big thing. Uh, the profession of sommelier was that of apprenticeship, and it was that of you have great people like David Gordon and Aldo Sam and all these other individuals that had nothing to do with the court whatsoever – They didn't need it. They still don't need it. It doesn't matter whether they have it or not. They've done amazing things and they're some of the greatest sommeliers in the history of United States sommeliers. Um, It's only been recently that we've seen people come to our programs and try to get ahead a little bit through that way. Yeah, it did start outside of these areas because you didn't need it. If you were really great at wine and you could do a really good job, you could work your way into being a wine professional, and sooner or later, you'd end up being a sommelier and you'd end up being beverage director at some point down the line. That was the traditional path. You generally start out as you know busboy or server or whatever it may be, dishwasher in some cases, maybe chef, whatever, and then you move slowly up through the ranks from server and you were the one that knew a little bit more about wine going through our programs has taken people who don't necessarily have that level of apprenticeship or experience and made it so that you can focus on wine and still get a decent job. It goes back to what we talked about before, though. You still need experience and you still need to be able to articulate about wine very, very, very well. It's been recently, it's it's kind of funny, it's been recently that we've seen master sommeliers come back to some of these urban markets. We've seen DC specifically get very big for master sommeliers. We've seen New York get very big for master sommeliers. And not necessarily because of a large number of people from New York that have passed the master sommelier exam, it's we've seen people from other markets move into New York City, take floor jobs, take beverage director jobs, whatever it may be. We had our first two master sommeliers who live in Boston passed this past year. They both passed at the exact same time, which really isn't all that unusual. You have people that study together and, and prepare together and get a particular level of knowledge, and so it's it's not rare to see two people from a similar place pass at the same time. I did it with the gentleman I worked with at the Breakers. He and I passed the same year, so we're starting to see that type of thing happen. And once you get a certain number of master sommeliers or advanced sommeliers in a community. It starts to swell out from there that people see, hey, I can get a really good job by going through these programs, and we're seeing
0: people do that. But when people get a really good job by going through the programs, and you contrast that with they started as a busser, they worked as a server for a while, then they became a captain, then they became a sommelier. I feel like maybe they had to eat less humble pie if they went through the exam, you know, in terms of being a service professional.
1: Yeah. And, and that's, that's certainly been one of the knocks on, on the court is that you don't have that experience and you don't, you haven't put the time in on the floor one of the things that we're that we're really highlighting is is that to be a master sommelier you really need to work on the floor you don't necessarily need to work on the floor when you're taking the test you need to have the experience though you need to have done it it's really really hard to pass our tests without having done so uh sure there are people who've done it you can always uh, take examples and and see people that have done that but at the same time you really need to do it. It's hard to be a great service professional if you don't know the, the, the mechanics and, and the mastery of service. And so it's, it, there is some of that. And yeah, there, there still are two schools. There's those that go through the court and those that don't go through the court. And I don't, I don't fault anyone for going through or not going through. That's, that's, that's fine. If they choose to go through the court, great, wonderful. We welcome them with open arms. But they also need to understand that the work involved in it is huge. And it's not a golden ticket. It is not a fast track towards anywhere.
0: How do you think that the court has changed the demographic of who are sommeliers? And how do you think it's going to change the demographic? I think it's changed the
1: demographic because I think people have seen that this is now a profession that they can get involved in. It used to be that 15, 20 years ago, that people got into this industry because this was the last thing that they could do. And it's a really nasty, negative way of looking at it. It's now where you've got people that are Ivy League graduates, and, and even beyond that, people with PhDs, people with whatever it may be, they see the world of wine as hey, this is a really great career. Yeah, there's a lot of hard work, but it's fun. I get to be around wine. I get to talk with people. I get to see all these amazing places and things there's something to it that's happened where people realize that this is a really great life and I can have a great life if I dedicate my life to wine. And so we're starting to see people come out of college wanting to do this. We're also seeing people who are now of a generation whose parents were drinking wine, who grew up in the household of drinking wine, who grew up where it was not uncommon to see a glass on the table. Whereas 20 years ago, it was almost unheard of. That generation didn't drink wine all the time. It was really rare. And so we're seeing people that understand wine and value wine and respect wine and people that graduate college that turn 21 and they want a glass of wine and they don't necessarily want a beer. But people will drink beer at the same time. It's kind of like they'll drink whatever they need to drink, but wine is certainly on the table and it's definitely a preferred beverage.
0: I mean, and certainly for you, I mean, I feel like a lot of what you just said kind of mirrors your own experience of it. Like, yes, I could enjoy this. Like this is a lifestyle I would enjoy and I can make a career out of it. Uh,
1: absolutely. It also took me hating your career first and, and having that element of it as well. And it's, you know, people ask me all the time, Andy, what do you drink? I said, well, you know, yeah, I drink a lot of wine, A lot of beer, Beer drink a lot of spirits. It's not just wine. You know, what do you like to drink for wine? Well, what I like to drink, you probably won't like. And it's 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 that type of thing where it's I know what I like to drink, I'll drink pretty much anything. And I I say that laughingly, it's not that I'm out there drinking anything all the time. I'm not doing shots of Jaeger at two o'clock in the afternoon. But at the same time, if someone has something and they want me to try it, I'm going to try it. Because to me, that's what's so interesting, is that it may be something I've never had before. I want to try it. I may hate whatever grape varietal,
0: but you know what? I'm going to try this. And, and that to me is, is what's so much fun. So when you go to the board meetings, I mean, what's the next set of problems? We say in restaurants, or you know, when I used to work in them, they would say in restaurants that volume would solve a lot of problems. You know, <laughs> as, long as, you're, as long as you have customers coming through the door, we'll figure everything else out. But if you don't have customers, then you're really screwed. You've had incredible growth and people paying money to take these courses, but what's the next set of challenges that haven't been addressed?
1: I think it's still the same set that's there. I think the problem of growth is one that is ever-changing, and it's one that's always ongoing, because growth is never constant. It's never the same. You may have an extreme number of applicants one year, and you may have a drop-off the next year. And the year after that, it may be more than the prior year was. So you never really know what you're going to get. And what I look at it is, is I'm looking at how do we continue to make our exams as consistent as possible? And then I'm looking at how do we make sure that our most qualified individuals who have the best chance of success at our examinations are the ones that are getting in. And that's a tough thing to do because we've got a lot of people coming into or coming in and applying for our courses and programs where it may take quite a few years for them to be able to get admitted to it. And that's tough. It's really difficult. We struggle all the time with how do we increase our capacity while maintaining our standard. Well, again, we're only 137 people. We have a very hierarchical system about how you get to be an advanced sommelier examiner or a master sommelier examiner. You don't pass the master sommelier exam and automatically become a master sommelier examiner. It doesn't work that way. We want to make sure that you know what it means and what it looks like and what these different skill sets are that these candidates have, what we expect them to to show in order to to get XYZ points, in order to, to pass our examination. So it's a very rigorous process once you pass the examination. So we we could pass twenty master sommeliers next year, and it wouldn't solve our issue. I mean, does that mean that you're leaving
0: money on the table because you can't grow fast enough?
1: I uh, trust it's not about leaving money because we're nonprofit. It's not about leaving money. It's about serving the community in the best way that we can. And, and no, it's it hard. Too bad. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's uh, but it's 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 one of those things, Levy, where yeah, we see a huge demand. We're trying to figure out how to do it. We've changed our application system this year for our advanced sommelier examination. Uh, we changed our master's exam a couple of years ago because we had too many people that wanted to sit for it and we couldn't accept them. So we'd made the decision to split theory off where you have to pass the theory portion of the exam before you can sit for service and tasting. It's still not My favorite thing that we've done, I still wish we didn't have to do it. It's altered the experience, but it's either that or congratulations, you're an advanced sommelier. You get to wait five years before you sit for the master's exam. That doesn't sit well. That doesn't work very well. That's not a good long-term solution. And so we're continuing to look at those solutions to how do we make it so that we can get the people who are interested in sitting for our courses and programs through, but it's also on them. Because the more people that pass, the more spots that open up. The fewer people that pass, the fewer spots that open up. And just because, you're, just because you get in one year, doesn't mean you're gonna get in the next year anymore. It was kind of an unwritten rule that that's the way that we would do things. If you were admitted to the advanced sommelier exam, you were guaranteed to get in the year after. We had to stop that, unfortunately, because we were finding people that were just not prepared. uh, And it's not that they couldn't do it at some point. It's that they weren't ready at that particular point to do it. They needed another year or two years or three years of experience to really be able to get there. And that's one of the things that we're finding. And that's one of the things that we talk about with the experience piece of it is that the individuals that that don't necessarily have that experience are consistently having the most difficult time.
0: So... What do you do for those people, or do you just let them figure it out on your own?
1: No, we can't let them figure it out on their own. Levy, the, the court was built on a mentorship system. It goes back to to the to what the sommelier profession is, and it started. I mean, there's the Guild of Sommeliers that started it in England many, many, many years ago, in order to create the apprenticeship system so that people could gain the experience to be a sommelier, not just master sommelier, but a sommelier. And we still abide by that. We still live and breathe by that. And so we, as much as our masters want to participate and want to mentor others, that's how they get involved. That's how candidates get involved. I still feel that there's a lot of hesitation on behalf of candidates to reach out to masters. Say, oh, I don't want to bother them. I don't want to, I don't want to take up their time. I'm going to waste their time. They make the decision for us instead of us making the decision whether we have the time to do it or not. And there's still a lot of guidance. I mean, I know, yes, I have my, my real job. I'm chairman, which takes up a huge amount of time. But I still find time to mentor candidates. And I'll always find time to do that because people did it for me. And it's still, it still will always be a huge portion of who we are and what we do.
0: Andy McNamara is trying to do for others what was done for him. Thank you very much for being here today. Thanks, Libby. Andy McNamara is the director of fine wine for Premier Beverage Company in Florida, as well as the chairman of the Court of Master Sommier's America. All AllDrinkToThatPod.com That's I-L-L-DrinkToThat P-O-D dot com Which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode and thank you for listening.